Hi everyone, it's me again, Scott from the Gen X Playback Show. And we are getting ready to start part two of our discussion on albums of the 1980s. Part one, we talked about the highest selling albums of the decade and of all time of albums that were created in the 1980s. This week, we're going to go over our personal favorites. So we had uh, different sets of criteria on uh, what made our list. But I think everybody will agree that all the albums that we talk about are definitely worthy of being on anybody's top list. Hopefully we can uh, bring back some good memories for you and think about what your favorite albums were at that time as well. So sit back and enjoy our favorite albums of the 1980s right here on Gen X Playback. Thanks. All right. We, we said we're going to talk about our favorites, so I'll let you go first. Uh, how many did you come up with? God, I came up with 10. I, I got like 14. Oh, do you? Okay, yeah. that's fine. All right. So I, I took a little different approach to this. I didn't necessarily give you my flat-out top 10. I kind of took it from the perspective, okay, someone comes to me and they say, all right, Sean, you talk a lot about Gen X. You talk a lot about the 80s. What what should I listen to? I, I'm not familiar with it. I'm, I'm, I'm 15 years old. What what would you kind of start me on and, and give me you know something that really speaks to what the era was like? Well, I, and, and we started the show off by saying that there's the one thing I hate is where people get preachy and say this is the greatest song of all right. time or this is the greatest artist of all time. Obviously, if you're listening, you know, to our podcast, you're going to have favorites that that I'm not going to agree with, and certainly Sean doesn't have. You know, we don't always, you know, we kind of are similar in our tastes, but we're not going to, our lists are not going to be spot on hundred percent agreement. So uh, that's why I kind of left it vague because I wanted you to kind of come up with your own criteria right. for how you wanted to do this. Okay. So you want me to give like Absolutely. everything? Okay. So give the whole thing. So I started out uh, with this one album and part of the reason why, you know, I went with this is most of us, you know, we'll have siblings that will influence our tastes. I mean, I don't know if I influence you at all sure. with what I listen to, but we had an, uh, we have an older sister, Lori, who had a really good record collection. Mm-hmm. You know, she's three years older than me, six years older than you, yep. and she was still coming out of the uh, late seventies, early eighties, and had had a really nice vinyl collection. Which, when she wasn't home, I would go help myself to. Yes, and I, like extensively. Sorry, Lori, I know you listen. I listen to all your records a lot. Well, she caught us in there one time. Yeah. yeah. Remember that? I I, I I think we got chased out with a baseball bat. <laughs> there, there was one time that, because she, she made this little sand uh, thing in a jar, and I dumped it over. <laughs> and instead of fessing to it, I tried to put the sand in, but it was like the colored sand, and she made a pattern. It was obvious I was getting caught, but, uh, you know, anyways. Um So, anyways, this was an out, al- this was a, this album I heard coming out of her room. And this okay. is where I first got exposed to it, and and it really is one of the things that that got me started. Um, and it was R.E.S.B. Wagons, High Infidelity, which I just mentioned. And you know, you had said that it was biggest album of 1981. Yes, this was huge. I mean, High Infidelity. Uh, you know, obviously had the big hits like Keep on Loving You, uh, Ticket on the Run, uh, Don't Let Him Go. It, but I like the songs like In Your Letter and, and Tough Guys. The, it, it's a great album. Uh, you know, Kevin Cronin still is the lead singer of Are You a Speedwagon, still has it going. But if you have the opportunity to go back and listen to the guitar player, Gary Rith- uh, Richrath. Or see him in con- they're still playing. I saw yeah. them in, oh, that's in right. York, you did see him that's right. last yeah. uh, in the summer of 2021. Now, Gary Richrath has passed away. Right. You know, he, so he has the great guitar licks that you'll hear on this album. Right. 
but uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And you did say that they were really good. Yeah, they, the the band was was excellent, and the the guy who took over, uh, he's he's been with them for whatever thirty years, and he has, and he's he's a, he's he's a great guitarist. Yeah, he has. Uh, so, anyways, uh, that was one of the first albums that I remember listening to, not just singles, but an album. Moving forward, and I'm kind of surprised this one wasn't on your list at all. But in 1983, Huey Lewis and the News came out with Sports. Okay. And I, I thought Sports was a great album. It To me, it really epitomizes kind of what the 80s were all about. Very happy, very, you know, very, very upbeat and bouncy. Yeah. I, I, I It's on my list. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, it's it's on my list that I was going to talk about. We might as well talk about it together because they um, this was their second album as Huey Lewis and the News that was uh, Chrysalis Records uh, released it. They, they produced, the, of all my favorite albums, they're the only band that self-produced without any assistance from another producer, which I thought was interesting. I, yeah, when I went back and researched that because I remember um, if you're a Gen Xer and you like sh- you know podcasts like this, I'm sure you probably watched Behind the Music when VH1 had it. Um, maybe worth a, an episode there is to talk about Behind the Music. But I remember in the Behind the Music that um, of Huey Lewis in the news, and he had basically said he had – tried for so many years to be successful in a band that he had that was called Oasis and that they, they ended up breaking up and he was pretty down and out at that point, made friends in the San Francisco area with the guys that ended up becoming the news. Right. And their whole purpose was just to stick together. And there had been times where they were asked to make personnel changes. Correct. And they flat out refused. And they said, this is our band. And I think they kind of had that attitude, um, which is funny because Do You Believe in Love off the first album was written by Mutt Lang. That is correct. Yes. And so, but at that point, Huey kind of reached out for a little bit of help. But by the time they made sports, they had a whole, you know, cachet of songs ready to go. And this is absolutely one of my favorite albums of all time. I have this, I ended up finding it on vinyl. I have it on vinyl at home. Well, and, and if, if someone is coming to me and they're they're young and they want a taste of what the 80s was like, you, you can't get something that's more approachable than sports. Uh, and, and I actually listened to it again, mm-hmm. you know, just today, actually, because I went to hear it and, and refresh my memory. And for me, the albums that I put on my, my list, I actually listened to every one of these again. And the reason was, is I wanted to see, does it still speak to me? Is it something I still like? And it is. In fact, it, it has inspired me to go out and find it on a vinyl. The, one of the one of the criteria for for my ten that I came up with was: is it a cover to cover? Yes. Album. Yes. Same. And sports was one of the first ones that I thought of. At least of of all the albums that I have here, this really is the 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 new or the oldest one that I have because I my criteria was was a little bit different, but. Um, one of the things that I, that for it to make my list is, can I start it on, you know, side A, song one, and run it through side B and all the way to the very end? Right. Absolutely. And not skip, yeah. you know, along the way. And, yeah. and because in the 1980s, albums were a bigger thing. It, the idea was you put a complete album together. It wasn't just a, a vehicle, a vessel to release four singles. Yeah. It was, everything had to fit. It's kind of like, because you, you know, with your DJing, experience everything's got to kind of like segue from one song to yeah. the next and that was there was important to have that with an album the same way you you weren't going to necessarily open the album with a with a power ballad right you know you you would open up with that anthemic rocker oftentimes if you're a rock band 
and you then you would kind of go from there, and it would tell a story, and that's so that's kind of what I uh, you know how I approach my list as well. Okay, so we're we're pretty much in agreement so far. All right, keep going. All right, I'm going to stay in 1983, and also we talk about Mutt Lang, and I, we talk about Mutt Lang writing a song for Huey Lewis in the news, but Mutt is more famous as a producer. He uh, works on what is a landmark album, and that is Def Leppard's Pyromania. Yeah, Pyromania was very... Uh, I almost put Pyromania on the list, but one of my criteria was that I had to buy it when it first came out, and I had to pay my own money for it. I did both. And Pyromania, even though I got the tape, it, I got it like maybe a little, maybe a year or so after it, it hit the hit the charts. So it didn't it didn't quite make my, my criteria, because... The, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you probably had a hard time whittling this down. Sure. So it was one. It was certainly on. If it didn't make the list, it was certainly an honorable mention because I I love this album also. Right, and you know, for those who who you remember, obviously, you know, Photograph was was we talked about that in a previous episode. What a big single it was, but even a bigger music video. It you know, Rock of Ages, Full In. It it's got a lot of classics on it. I, it doesn't sell as many as. The subsequent release of uh, Hysteria is going to sell, but this kind of lays the foundation. And for me, I, I think I prefer this album. Yeah, this is a little more rocking than than I think. I think Hysteria was was I think made for a little bit more radio. Yes, I think I think it was a little bit more polished. It was to this, become the the rock version of Thriller. Yeah, this this was um, Pyromania had an edginess and a rawness to it. I think that you know true uh, Def Leppard fans probably loved even more. All right, so I'll go to my next album. And so this is where you and I differ. I did not only put things on that I owned. Okay. So here's one that I never owned. And I really only know the singles very uh, But, you know, for the most part. But I, I have listened to the album. I, You know, I was, once again, I went on today and listened to the whole album. And that is uh, Cindy Lauper, She's So Unusual. Oh, wow. And the reason I put that is because I think there was a, a this this moment in 1983 and into 1984 where at least at at high school you know when i I was in high school this this was so huge especially to the girls Mm -hmm. there was a lot of girls that kind of adopted the fashion of cindy lauper and the you couldn't escape the, the music and part of the reason i did this scott is because i can get a twofer out of this all right, so okay. the, an album I'm not putting on my list because there's a lot of people listening might not be as aware of it, but a band that you and I love, the Hooters. Yep. And there's a Hooters connection Yeah. to She's So Unusual. And if you go back and listen to She's So Unusual, you can hear Rob Hyman, one of the, the co-founders and co-lead singers of the Hooters, is all over that album. Oh, yeah. And his sound, the Hooters sound, comes through the songs. Yes. And so the Rick Chertoff who was the producer of the Hooters, was also Cindy Lauper's producer. The you know He br- is the one that brought Rob Hyman into the project. And Rob helped Cindy craft a lot of these songs. And it, 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 to me, you there are going to be people out there that can be more familiar with Cindy Lauper than they are with the Hooters. Sure, yeah. But think about the, when you, when you think about the name, the Hooter, and the instrument, the Hooter. Right. Which is what the Hooters are named after. Correct. If, if we maybe just... You know, Clarify that just a little bit. Yeah, the sports bar did it even exist back in the eighties when the Hooters I came out? I don't know. I honestly don't know. But uh, they, for those of you who don't know, the Hooters were and still are a pretty popular band in the Philadelphia area. Yes, 
they they they're legends in the philadelphia area they are and you know go back and look it up it's an actual thing they opened live aid in philadelphia yes, they did so yeah. th- this was a legitimate band but they only really had one album that really got a lot of notoriety oh, come on uh, no, One Way Home, that's when I saw them in concert. I, I'm not saying it wasn't a good album, and it had some good songs on it, but as far as the masses, I, I don't know that that, you know, you know Johnny B, sure, you know, was was okay. Carla with a K. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, Satellite. I, I, I love these Engine songs. 999. I, I agree, but I don't think there's, I think a lot Fight of people. on the same side? Come yeah. on. <laughs> but uh, Nervous Night still was the one that kind of put them on the map. Yeah, Nervous Night was what made them international. And also, interestingly, as well, and, and to keep with the Philadelphia connection, there is an artist that you and I know uh, who's passed away by the name of Robert Hazard. Mm-hmm. Famous band, Robert Hazard and the Heroes. Um, uh, you know, I'm now... What, is it uh, Lily? Um, John Lily. Is it John Lily? There's the guitar player. Who, John with, Lily was yeah. a guitar player, yeah. So he's the guitar player in the Hooters, and he had previously been with the Robert Hazard and the Heroes bands. So uh, John, you know, so there's another connection. But so anyways, the song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, was Robert Hazard's song. Yes. That he had released. And, you know, Rick Chertoff, uh, you know, knew about this from being in the Philadelphia scene. He pulls this kind of obscure song that never went anywhere they kind of, you know, work it over, give it a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a female spin to it and make it, you know, personal to Cindy Lauper. And it becomes this massive anthemic song for a lot of girls of that time. And if you remember the instrument that was played in the song, Money Changes Everything. I do. Um, you know, if, you, if you're listening on, on this podcast and you remember that uh, it sounded like, didn't sound like a horn, it didn't sound like a recorder. That was the instrument that That's was the known Hooter. as the Hooter. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, just a couple of songs that people might remember. You know, Girls Just Want to Have Fun was big. Time After Time. I mean, that that is, you can you know hear Rob uh, Hyman mm-hmm. singing on that song. Yeah, he sings the harmony. Uh, she Bop, All Through the Night, and then Money Changes Everything, and then When You Were Mine. These were all huge hits, major videos that were put out. And it, it's a song, or it, it's an album that, like I said, I never owned but I thought I needed to give some type of, um, you know, time and and attention to that kind of that segment. There were a lot of girls that I was friends with that right. really liked this album. Right. And she was sort of the precursor, I would say maybe the, the trendsetter for uh, what the Madonna was able to eventually, you know, that Madonna, Whitney Houston, there weren't that many uh, female solo artists in the 1980s up to that point. Uh, I think you had to go back to the 70s and maybe Linda Ronstadt to to talk about a solo artist that was a singer that was pumping out a lot and selling a lot of records. Well, uh, then I'll I'll continue with that and we'll move on to my next album, which I did not own. And just because I'm going to stay in the same little genre that we're in right now, and that would be Madonna's Like a Virgin. Okay. That is kind of a, a, a standout, standout album. And it's also a Nile Rodgers album. And I don't really have any other Nile Rodgers Albums on here, you know, now Rogers, you know, as we've talked previously, was the guitarist in Chic. Uh, he and Bernard Edwards were the were the writers. They went off and became incredible producers and songwriters for other people. And he's kind of the 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 man behind the scenes here with Madonna's Like a Virgin. Obviously, the the lead the single Like the Virgin was big. Material Girl, Angel, uh, you know, Dress You Up was another big song. Mm-hmm. So Into the Groove was a big song. Uh, so once again, I did not own this, but one of the beautiful things about in the 1980s was you could be somebody who liked my next band and still liked Madonna and Cindy Lauper. And that would be the next band would be the Mighty Van Halen with 1984. Okay. The every, 
people will, will argue oftentimes in the Van Halen camp, uh, which was, you know, the, the better album. Uh, obviously, we have the Roth era, we have the Sammy era. The next album is going to be 5150, which is Sammy Hagar. Loved it at the time. But as far as, for me, the, the pinnacle for Van Halen was the 1984 album. Uh, obviously, the, the, the lead single was Jump. You had Panama, Hot for Teacher, I'll Wait. But you also had other songs on the album that I loved, such as Top Jimmy and Drop Dead Legs. Mm-hmm. And uh, the producer was their longtime producer, Ted Templeman. The great Ted Templeman. And Templeman, in an interview talked about how he and Eddie Van Halen really clashed over the making of this album because Eddie wanted to add new sounds and Templeman was in the David Lee Roth camp and said, we're a rock and roll band. We should not be doing this. And Eddie did, you know, whether you agree with it or not, this was the album that ultimately broke the band up with David Lee Roth, but it took them to a new level as a band in terms of airplay and in terms of record sales, they jump is their only number one song ever uh, that, that they, and it was, it had the keyboards and it had the synthesizer. It was, it was a new element that while it introduced somebody like me to the band, and this is on my list as one of my top songs of all time, you were a big fan of Van Halen. Oh yeah. I knew Van Halen, but I wasn't, I was kind of on the outside. This is the album that got me in. Sure. And a lot of it had to do with MTV because MTV it has influenced a lot of what's on my list. Sure. Um, but 1984 kind of opened up the sphere of Van Halen fans and made it a little bit more radio ready. And uh, it, that's, it got me in. So I, I can't really, I can't really argue and say that it was, for Van Halen purists and say, oh, this was their worst album that they ever came out. To me, it's their best album that they ever came out with. It's it's right up there. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the hardcore guitar players will often or usually tell you Fair Warning is the number one. But Fair Warning, as much as I, I love that album and it is, it may, or it might even be my favorite. It's it's not as radio friendly. It's it's the the sort of uh, back in the day the tape you're going to pop in when you went to work out, where this was. Something that you 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 put in the boombox and you walk down the boardwalk at Ocean City. Yep. And you you know everybody was kind of singing along. Nobody's going to tell you to turn it down. Exactly right. There you go. Exactly. So that's uh, 1984, the Van Halen. Next song or album on my list would be John Cougar Mellencamp with Scarecrow. Okay. You know, a lot of people would you know I, I do not have Born in the USA on my list. All right, and you know at the time John Mellencamp probably fell into that genre that you know that springsteen that's who he got lumped in with i think it's a little unfair because i always preferred mellencamp and i went with scarecrow i could have gone with his previous album Uh uh-huh i could have gone with his subsequent album the lonesome jubilee there's there three are kind of together in my book but this is the one like you were saying that you owned this is the one that i owned Mm -hmm. right away i mean i got this when it came out it was 1985 and this album spoke to me every song on here talked to me and it was all about the heartland and it was all about uh personal issues and it it, you know there there was rockers but there was the there was the ode to the to the music that john loved of the 60s and Mm -hmm. it but it had you know lonely old night which that's a great song it it, it's a song i've never gotten sick of you know there's I, i don't have too many uh memories of my freshman year in high school especially like early yeah, it's kind of a blur. 
Yeah, it probably is for most 14-year-olds when you go to high school. Uh, but one of the songs that really stands out in my mind at, when it was released at the beginning of my freshman year in high school was 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 John Cougar Mellencamp. Was Lonely Old Night. Yeah, Lonely yeah. Old Night. So and yeah, that and that if you have not listened to this album from start to finish, if you're new, if you if if this is kind of this podcast is where you're you know maybe going to get some information, I highly highly recommend you check out this album. Okay, and it's and it's something where. From start to finish, it is an album. There's not a bad song on this. And I, time and time again, recommend this to people. So I mm-hmm. uh, love this one to death. All right, next up. This one's a little obscure. This is the only one on my list that probably doesn't make a top album sales of the 80s. And it may be my favorite. And that would be the Outfields Play Deep. <laughs> yeah, you love that. <laughs> I, I, he's I, not lying, folks. He loved that album. Still do. Yeah. Still do. Yeah, it's that uh, your your group of friends. Yeah, uh, your senior year in high school, you guys were all over that yeah. that uh, that album. Well, you sure. know, I I actually, you know, I, I like to play this little game sometimes when I get together. You know, you'll, you'll get together at the at the dinner party or what have you, and say, okay, what what when you were in school, what was the one album that kind of crossed the 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 borders the that that was inclusive to most people. Mm-hmm. And I would say my class was the outfield play deep. There, this was something that you know most. And when I say most, I'm saying, you know it's like anything over fifty percent is most. I would say most people had this album. Now, granted, our high school only had about one hundred fifty people that would graduate every year, but you know, hey, don't quibble over numbers hey, here. That's that's still it, it's, it's still seventy five, seventy six copies it's sold. Still a poll, right? <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. So uh, you know, of course, you know. You know, say it isn't so. Uh, your love or the big hits that came off of that, yeah. and you know, once once again, another album that from start to finish uh, is is a great album. Uh, I've never grown tired of this album. Great harmonies. The harmonies are are, are timeless. To, I think. So you know, interesting. I was I, I brought this up. So the last time I was together I, I, with some friends, I brought this up, and so one of my friends, uh, John Blowers, he was at Bloomsburg, and I think he said it was 1985 or 1986, and he said that. They Hooters came in and played a concert, and the outfield opened for them. Oh wow! Okay, and that and he said the outfield was this brand new band that was just kind of getting released, and the Hooters were were the main act, and he because it was a magical night. Just a little side note: um, anybody that does remember the music video from the outfield, that there's four guys in the video. Correct. There were actually only three guys in the band. Correct. They added a member because they didn't think fans would want to listen to a three-piece band, which I thought was just very interesting. They just brought some nobody in to do the video shoot, and that was it. That that was his that was his claim to fame is that he was now had nothing to do with the band itself. They were they had no keyboardists. They were and, they were straight up three man. Yeah, and band. you know, and for the most part, the the, the outfield was a two two piece. I mean, it, you know, it, you know the. Um, you know, John Spinks, the guitar player, wrote everything, and uh, Tony Lewis, uh, you know, was the lead singer. And fortunately, both of them have passed away. Mm. And you know, so uh, the, the outfit will never be again. I know they rotated a bunch of drummers over the years, but that was you know kind of sad because I know Tony Lewis was out right before COVID. He was doing some of the uh, the '80s cruises, mm-hmm. and uh, I've watched them online. And I, I remember thinking, yeah, when they when COVID breaks, I'm going to go out and see them, and it never happened. Didn't so happen. unfortunately, all right, Alfield, play deep. Next on the list is 
one of the all-time great albums, uh, which really speaks to my generation, and that would be Bon Jovi's Slippery One Wet. Yes, yes. The, the, I was a fan of Bon Jovi when they, when they uh, obviously when Runaway came out because it was mm-hmm. a very popular, but he didn't have a band at that point. No. So it wasn't until, um, oh, what's the name of the album? 50, 9,800 Degrees 9, Fahrenheit. 9,800 Degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. When that, when that out, then they had the song In and Out of Love. Great. Which yeah. is another great video. It's a cool video. But so they were they were known, but they they weren't s- like superstars. Like they weren't world renowned. Slippery and Wet took them to the next level. Well, I remember watching MTV, and they released "You Give Love a Bad Name," mm-hmm. and it it you know it made a little bit of of a, of a wave, not much, but th- they were a known band. The uh, and I remember liking it, and it, but it wasn't necessarily huge. And I, I remember hearing interviews with John where. You know, prior to Slippery One Wet, they were a pretty successful opening band. Mm-hmm. And they would play with a, a lot of the the bigger bands. Like, uh, you know, they did a tour with Rat, you know, over that, you know, at, at the time. You know, a little more on the harder side. Mm-hmm. You know, Bon Jovi is kind of credited or discredited for kind of taking that music and almost creating what becomes the hair metal is because yeah. a lot of people tried to, to copy Bon Jovi. And that's part of the reason why this is on the list is because this album... And and the videos, especially on, on top of that, really created what would come later. There was a lot of copycatting that went on after Slippery When Wet came out. But much like you talked about with Appetite for Destruction, kind of being a slow mm-hmm. rise, they they come out with "You Give Love a Bad Name." Next, you know, then then it's Living on a Prayer, and Living on the Prayer kind of definitely took them to this next yeah. level. Yeah, it did. They, it, you know. But I think a song that a lot of people forget is Wanted Dead or Alive, which at the time I think was bigger than Living on a Prayer. I mean, Living on the Prayer, I've heard some people say it, why well, I heard them say it in the Goldbergs, that, you know, that was the the song of our generation. Well, it it really, their, their arc was, was an ascension, and it was kind of like taking off sort of like a rocket because it just kept getting higher and higher and higher, and I... I don't want to steal your thunder because you did see them in concert. Yeah, when they when Slippery When Wet was the number one album. It out was there. well, yeah, and and so people will, will you know once again I like to play the game too as far as you know what's what's your favorite concert you ever went to and I always say the night I saw uh, Bon Jovi and Cinderella at the Spectrum, nineteen eighty seven, I think it was March of eighty seven, Spectrum. They be they at that moment they were the biggest band in the world, and, and yeah. Cinderella had the number two album. They, the, you, you weren't. It was the toughest ticket out there. The only reason I got to go to the show was because they had an off night on their tour, and they just added an additional show because they kept selling out. And it, for those of you who go, would go to concerts back then, usually you'd have the curtain up for the seats behind the stage. They took the curtain down, so here's an additional show that's a complete sold uh, sellout. And I just remember the electricity in the building at the time because for that moment, this was the biggest show in the world. As you say, Cinderella was humongous at the time. Yeah. And Bon Jovi had just really risen even higher, and the big song was Wanted Dare Alive. Right. Okay. So anyways, that's that's Bon Jovi, Slippery One Wet. You got to check that out if you're not familiar with it. Here's, here's one, and I'm going to go back. I kind of missed this one. I don't know if you know that this one will be on my list, but, you know, 
this kind of shows you how I, I like how diverse music was back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And a band that was kind of big in the 70s remade themselves in 1983, and that was ZZ Top with Illuminator. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had this album I did at the too. time. And I did too. I, I once again listened to it again last night. It's a good album. Yeah, it sure is. I did yeah. not skip a song. Yeah, unfortunately, that's one that kind of fell off my radar over the years. Um, but yeah, I, I did own this. I own this cassette tape. And uh, and again, very. Uh, if I would not have even looked at ZZ Top without the MTV video. Sure. But they were so cool. And, yeah, give and me all your loving, sharp-dressed man. But make no mistake, the videos did not, uh, the album would not have been able to stand uh, as an all-timer without having good music and and zz top was was they were cool those guys were yeah. always known as a cool band i mean did you see the documentary on zz top i that, did not it's on netflix it's really good it, you know uh, obviously dusty hill the bass player has passed away right but frank beard and billy gibbons are still out there performing mm-hmm. and they, they're just a, a really good live band and it, it was kind of amazing how they reinvented themselves because they were just kind of this little old band out of texas the you know it was uh tube steak boogie and um, you know, dark sunglasses at night, and they 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 definitely had this rock sound that we would listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, WMMR would play them quite a bit, and right. WTPA out of Harrisburg would would play them. But it wasn't until uh, when they came out with Eliminator that they really polished their act up, and they kind of embraced the sound of the time, which was drum machines. Yeah, it had some synthesizers. There was you know, there's a program bass in there. You know, it's kind of controversial with that because did T- Dusty really play on the album? TV dinners. TV dinners. <laughs> it's funny. It's, it's a funny video. But ZZ Top was known to, to throw songs like that into their albums. Yeah. Um, you know, Sleeping Bag was, was another one. Uh, but yeah, that was, and the video is just as strange as the, uh, as you could imagine. If you go back and YouTube the the video for uh, TV dinners, it's, it's pretty bizarre, but it's kind of funny in a cool way. It is. So, you know, the, the special effects are yeah. not very good, but no, hey, terrible. We're, we're, so the, the, the next album is one that my brother got to listen to every morning as we went to school, or my senior year. And it, it released in 1986, be, becomes the first rap album ever to go to number one, and that would be the Beastie Boys' License to Ill. Yeah, uh, uh, an album that blew my mind at the time. Yeah, you were all over that one, produced by, by, by Rick, Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin, yeah, and um, really kind of blew the lid off of rap music into the into the mainstream. I'm, I actually have one of my entries is rap, but it's not the Beastie Boys. Um, but in combination, there were about three three different artists out there that sort of brought rap to the mainstream. And certainly, the Beastie Boys is is one of them. They're they're up there at the very top. They're they're pioneers in terms of uh, what they how bringing rap music to to the masses. Right, fight for your right to party. It was was big, but you know, even though that was the the big song off the album, it wasn't my favorite. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I kind of got tired of that one after a while. But there's there's some gems on there. You know, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, the New Style, Brass Monkey, a Paul Revere. Th- mm-hmm. These are all really good songs, and it it, it was a it was a groundbreaking album at the time, and it's kind of, I think it still holds up pretty well. It does, in my opinion. Yeah, you're right. All right, so next on my list of many that I have here, we're going to go with Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. Okay. The, this was an album that, you know, Scott said was kind of a uh, slow build. I didn't get it at first. 
it, it's it's something that um, you know. I went off to, in the, the first college I went to because I went to many. I, w- I went off to to one out in Kansas, Heston College, because uh, I wanted to play soccer. So I went to a junior college out there and played some soccer. And the um, uh, I was not into Guns N' Roses until I went out there. And it was amazing how in the fall of 1988, which is when I, I went out there, that I got exposed to Guns N' Roses more than just. Welcome to the Jungle, which was kind of all I'd really seen at that point. And I really, I heard the album for the first time. Because when you were in in Heston, uh, Kansas, which is in the middle of nowhere, Mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot to do. And keep in mind, this was was 1988. So when I, I, you know, I'm out there, we don't have a lot of entertainment. And you would listen to albums, as you did back in the old days. Right. And I actually got to hear from start to finish this album. And that album, that spoke to me. You know, I talked about other things speaking to me. This this was something where, you know, if, if you were a, an angry young man, and I wasn't an angry young man, but still, it, occasionally you get, people get ticked off. And it's like, this is, there, there's aggression here in this album. Oh, you had talked earlier before about our summer job at the Water Buggy Water Slide. Well, those of us chosen select people got to stay late at night and operate the miniature golf course. But one of the things about working at the miniature golf course, you're there by yourself. So all you had was you sat in this shed mm-hmm. and you had a radio. And so I had the radio on. And that's the first time I remember hearing a Sweet Child of Mine ever being played on the radio. So we're talking the summer of 1988. All right. right. And uh, so I saw it, I heard it, and I, I thought, yeah, it's not a bad song. Um, I think what really gave this album legs was actually the the, the female support of that song and that video that because i wasn't I, you know sweet child of mine is, is a good song but it didn't really draw me to the band because there have been one-off bands with you know songs like that before through that and through my my female friends is how i heard welcome to the jungle that to me cha- kind of changed the landscape yeah and that's what got me into the rest of the album and like you said you mean the hit songs they're they're good hit songs but they're not my favorite songs off of the album night train um it's mr. So Bra- it, mr brown's you know, it's, it's so, so easy, easy. Yeah. i mean those are those to me uh, blue, uh rocket queen blues rock at its best yeah and uh you know it's on my list so i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about it also but uh as much attention that gets put to axel rose and slash steven adler man great drummer uh in and even slash and and duff and izzy uh after because they had to kick him out because of drugs he could not kick drugs um, but even, I think it was Izzy Stradlin said afterwards, we lost a lot of our heartbeat as a band when we had to fire Steven Adler because bringing a di- in a different drummer, they went from being, uh, rock to heavy metal. And he, and he said, that's, that was the transition. And, uh, unfortunately when Adler had to leave a lot of, a lot of the sound of that appetite for destruction had to go with it. And I'm glad you mentioned Izzy Stradlin, you know, because obviously Axel Rose gets a lot of attention. Slash gets an incredible amount of attention and deserved. I'm a big fan of Slash, but Izzy Stradlin was the the main songwriter mm-hmm. for Guns N' Roses. Everybody contributed. If you look at the albums, they all kind of get a writing credit. But you know, Izzy was the driving force. He was kind of that uh, almost a Malcolm Young. Rhythm guitarist, kind of the quiet guy in the background that in, in a lot of ways was running the show. Well, he, him and Axel were both from Indiana. Correct. They knew each other as kids growing up. Uh, kind of reconnected out in, in L.A. 
because they kind of went their separate ways. But when when Izzy kind of when Izzy walked away from the music scene, he moved back to Indiana. He lived back there for quite. I guess he's back in California now. But for a number of years, when he decided to get away from music, get sober, he went to Indiana. He went home. He was living where he grew up. So I mean, this is not a guy who necessarily craved a lot of a lot of the spotlight, but yet he was a creative driving force behind the group. And also one of the reasons why I think Appetite for Destruction was the way that it was was because you had these these kind of guys living on the street that came together they they were they the songs deal with a lot of kind of street type of issues mm-hmm. and they these are guys that are not writing from their mansions which eventually is what happens when you have an album this successful and money comes into the picture it's going to change you know yeah. Cindy Lauper said money changes everything yeah yeah you know but in this case it, it happens and they kind of lost their edge in, in a bit of a way but from what i you know i've always heard these guys live together in this house and they did nothing but write and work on these songs yeah. and that what they produced was was very raw and it was it was right for the moment at the time oh yeah uh, to me you talk about trans you know transformative moments in music i think uh guns and roses appetite for destruction because remember the you had touched on the hair metal sure this was these guys were not hair metal. They were not into makeup. In the they first video for for Welcome to the Jungle, I think against Axel's wishes, he's the hair's all teased up, yeah, and it's hit, the only time you saw it like and that. He hated and he hated that right. too. Yeah. It, um, but anyway, continue. So my final album, and I'll turn it over to you after this, is uh, Scott had mentioned earlier that I I was a huge fan of of this album and this band, and that would be U two and the Joshua Tree, which maybe arguably one of the most perfect albums of the 1980s yeah it, it, it is from start to finish a masterpiece you know um just in doing um research for for this show uh, for this particular episode uh they called it spiritual rock okay i never heard that expression before which but to me you know when you when you think about it, it actually kind of makes sense because he wrote lyrically uh, much different than a lot of the rock and roll That'd be Bono, songs that yes. you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, the message that he was, that he was saying or what he was writing about, he's very introspective, kind of along the same lines as I think, like a, like a Mellencamp or a Springsteen, sure. where he, he, you know, lyrically, if you just take the music completely out and just put the words on paper, the, the guy's a poet. Uh, and, but he was, um, you know, writing songs about everything from, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, streets of no name. With or I, without you. I, it's just, it, it, like you said, that uh, excellent choice. Yeah. In God's Country, One Tree Hill, there's, there's more songs that are on this album that you've heard that you don't realize that you've heard until mm-hmm. you hear them like, yeah, that's right, I'm familiar with this. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough uh, to see their uh, Joshua Tree uh, reunion tour. Well, not a reunion, but you know, where they where they went back and celebrated the anniversary of the Joshua Tree. Right. And they played the album from start to finish. Uh, you know, they 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 sandwiched it with some of their other hits, but in the middle of the show, it was Joshua Tree start to finish. And I, I was just amazed at how, how good that album was. And you know, I've said this with other albums, how well it has stood the test of time. You know, th- this was just such a landmark album, and it, it really, it, it took a band that was pretty big, 
you know, U2 was, was already big. They played at Live Aid. Mm -hmm. They had one of the biggest moments at Live Aid when, when you know, Bonnie goes in, out into the crowd during Bad, which, to be honest with you, for me, I liked U2 prior to that, and that's when U2 really got on my radar. But yeah, Unforgettable Fire. Unforgettable Fire, with that album, um, you know, in the Pride in the Name of Love you know, was big. But when they came out with Joshua Tree, as I think I heard, I don't know if it was Edge or, or Bono say that in a lot of ways, this album was directly influenced by the Unforgettable Fire tour. So they toured the U.S. extensively. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more of that Americana sound to it. You know, you talk about Mellencamp, and that's kind of what would have happened in the Midwest. Uh, that's why, you know, I'm kind of glad that I, I did get to go to school out there in the Midwest, because you kind of, you experienced it. It's kind of like this rootsy kind of country kind of sound. You know, you might, you might, the same person that, we go to a Scorpions concert, we go to a George Jones concert. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of down-home sound, and in a way, that American Sun Records sound kind of comes into play with Joshua Tree. Well, and they even take it the next, when they do Rattle and Hum, which is right. the album after that, they take that American sound even further because they, they explore a lot of blues music. You know, they play with B.B. King, and, uh, you know, they, they sing about... Um, you know, Angel Harlem. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of... They, they loved the American uh, music persona and the music history of American music. So they, they really, the last couple albums, uh, particularly Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum, uh, really kind of set the pace for what they what they were going to put into Ameri you know, American music. Okay, so that's my list, Scott. Okay. Now I turn it over to you. Okay, so again, you know, kind of to go over my, my criteria in... I wanted to put some because we had talked about some favorite albums and, and I I had I had to set some kind of a some kind of a barrier. Because so you ended just, up with like so, a, a fifty albums they, like I had before I started just, putting them down. There were just so many, you know, because I had talked about going back as early as when I was you know twelve thirteen years old. We were talking about uh, Duran Duran with Rio, and I I did have Pyromania, but I actually didn't own it until a couple of years after. So there were there were quite a few um, that I ended up kind of cutting off. Mm -hmm. I had on my list was Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love. Uh, I had to put that in as an honorable mention. Not born in the USA. And I guess it just goes to show the fact that I'm three years younger than you. A lot of these groups that you talk about as the, you know, the trans, you know, the, the, the albums that set the pace it's the album after that sure. that seems to you know really hit me most yeah, because, because I'm a little bit older. Sure, yeah, because you know the albums at least back then there was a cycle. Yeah, and usually bands worked with the two year cycle, so right. your the the age difference would make total sense. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and check off the ones that we already agreed on. So I had Huey Lewis and the News Sports. That's really the one of the first albums that I bought when it came out, and I I wanted to own it right away so uh, you know we already talked about that appetite for destruction same thing had to have the tape the cassette tape got that right away van halen's 1984 um i did count it even though technically i paid somebody to dub it for me uh tim moeller uh you know, shout out to you know wherever you are tim um, but I did pay him for it and um so he did dub 1984 for me so i did pay for it when it came out uh all right so a little bit different on on my list is uh, you had John Cougar, you had John Cougar Mellencamp sure. and his Scarecrow album. I had the Lonesome Jubilee, which was the one well, that came yep, out after. Yeah, right. Nineteen eighty seven. Um, what I what what moved me about 
the Lonesome Jubilee, aside from the fact that it had a ton of... My favorite song on there is Cherry Bomb. Love, I mean... One of my favorite songs of all time. How about Rudy Toot Toot? I love Rudy Toot Toot because he, he wrote that. Good song. He wrote that as a tribute to his daughter because she was mad that he never used her name in any of uh, the songs. Uh, so he ended up writing Rudy Toot Toot, which is like a kind of a lullaby that he wrote for his daughter. But anyway, um, the Lonesome Jubilee. What I think Mellencamp did differently in this album compared to Scarecrow. Scarecrow was kind of like a protest rock. Uh, you know, he, he's lyrically he was very. Um, assertive you know he had a lot to say lonesome jubilee for me they they blended so much of the music that we grew up with because you go back to the 70s uh we talked about it before in our tv series but our our dad loves country music all right we were raised on bluegrass bluegrass music and when we would go up to the hunting camp with our dad and everybody, all the members up there knew how to play some kind of an instrument and an impromptu jam session would always start up. And they're not playing Johnny Cash. They're not playing Kenny Rogers. They're playing uh, Scruggs and it's, Flats. It's Bill and, Monroe. And Bill Monroe. And they're playing bluegrass music. Right. The Lonesome Jubilee, for me, was the first time I think I ever heard that kind of style of music where you, you now you have a fiddle player now you have you, you're you got mandolins you have all these instruments that i grew up with listening to as a kid in the cabin uh now you're hearing them on a record uh with with somebody as you know big as john at the time john cougar mellencamp but uh the lonesome jubilee to me the sound it's the sound the overall sound that really stands out to me as far as the greatness of that album had to have it and to me, it's a combination it's that, that I guess they call it Heartland Rock, but uh, whatever that means. But it's a combination. To me, it's the closest thing to, to meshing country and and popular music that, that I could remember in the 80s. And that's kind of why I grouped his three albums in the 80s together with Uh-Huh, Scarecrow, and Lonesome Jubilee. I it, He could have released that uh, those albums as a three-album set, mm-hmm. and they fit with one another. It's Uh-Huh is a little more straightforward rock. Yeah. A little bit, yeah, a little bit more standard, like you were used to hearing. That was similar to American Fool. Yes. Uh, which was when he was John Cougar. When he was John Cougar. When you get to Scarecrow, it's a little more Springsteen-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you, know, we, you know, we talk with Springsteen and Dylan, a little more of that type of influence. And then you're right, Lonesome Jubilee, he kind of goes a little more into the uh, Americana. Like, you know, we talked about with you too. He's, he's embracing the um the instruments of of kind of you know people that are in the mountains it's it's it is more of those down home instruments and i i, I loved it as well i mean mm-hmm. i thought it was a great album i i should mention that we are from lancaster pennsylvania and the producer well co-producer i should say for this album for lonesome jubilee was a guy by the name of don gaiman who actually is from lancaster county pennsylvania he grew up in the metropolis of blue ball pa population 1094 today today not that many back then yeah yeah. but don gaiman uh kind of made his fame in the sound arena with um with claire brothers sound lidditz as we said uh we're only about maybe 20 minutes away from claire brothers worldwide if, if that and the claire brothers were the pioneers of creating live sound for bands don gaiman uh, they said, uh, from what I've read about Don Gaiman, 
was every bit as important to that whole process as the Clare brothers themselves. And so Don Gaiman ended up getting into music producing. And I looked up the names of the bands that he uh, helped work, that he worked with. I mean, it's a who's who of, of rock and roll from you're talking the, the early seventies or even the sixties on to the, to the eighties, James Brown, Chicago, Eric Clapton, REM, Hootie and the Blowfish. I mean, these are some of the biggest albums ever made. And it, it, it to me, it strikes me because, you know, Lancaster County is not a very big place and to have somebody who's been a seven time Grammy nominee as a producer, uh, to, to do work on this album, I, I felt it was worth a mention. So. And that's, you know, I know we've mentioned a few times about Claire brothers, but that's something not everybody realizes that we're kind of in an area that's very music centric here in Lancaster in the, so the, the closest, uh, venue, major venue would be Hershey stadium. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, a lot of the artists will use Claire Brothers and their their sister company, Tate Towers, right. who usually makes the video screens for these major, major events. And so quite often we will have these big tours that kick off right here in Hershey just so that the Claire Brothers and, and Tate company can go down and set things up and, and they can take a week or two to kind of fine-tune things before they head off on tour. When, when my wife and I saw Daryl Hall and John Oates at uh when they kicked off their world tour in 2020 the weekend covid hit they played one date and that was in hershey okay. that was where we saw and that was where they opened the tour was in hershey pa and don gaiman i mean he he did all those early mellencamp albums yes he worked with with mellencamp a lot and that's how he ended up getting more work in the 90s because of the reputation he had from from working with uh with john mellencamp so that was one um I had Bon Jovi on the list, but I didn't have Slippery. You had New Jersey. I had New Jersey. I, I knew you were going to do that. That was my uh, that was my senior year, man. I, it really was when when uh, Bad Medicine came out. My senior year was ready to start. It was just getting ready to start because it was at the at the close of the summer of '88 when Bad Medicine came out. And I mean that when you're somebody that grows up not really expecting to go to college, which we ended up doing as adults later. Um, but when you're somebody who kind of grows up in the, this area, college was not necessarily on your radar. And for me at the time, college was not on my radar. So this was kind of like, I don't know, in a, in a bad, uh, in a bad 80s song, this was, this was like, this was my, the, my apex okay. <laughs> of my life. So that's how I went into my senior year. And, and, um, you know, when Bon Jovi came out with New Jersey, it was big and it was huge. And, uh, that side, that first side, um, Top to bottom. What, what's your favorite song off this album? Born to Be My Baby. Okay. That's my favorite. That, um, that I think a lot of it had to do was the video that was made, which was, uh, you know, sheer genius, how they made the video. Where, where, where they're showing them in the studio. They're in the recording studio. And right. they have the isolated pieces of the uh, of the song. You had Tico in there playing the drums. Um, you know, you had... Uh, Richie Sambora, Alec, Alec John Alec playing bass. Yeah, David Bryan on keyboards. So, and, and they have them, just the way that they shot the video really kind of, but at that point I was already, already had the, already had the cassette tape. Um, right, because Bad Medicine was the first single. That was the first one. I had, uh, you know, my senior year in high school, I bought a 1986 Chevy S10 Blazer that had a Delco sound system in it. If you had a GM car back then, you know what a Delco stereo is. With a cassette player, which for me was a first, so this was on a, a heavy rotation in my mm -hmm. uh, in my car. Chances are, this uh, 
a lot of these tapes that I'm that I'm talking about, this was in my car when I was driving around in uh, for the first time in my uh, Blazer. Well, I, I I think New Jersey was a, was an excellent album as well. I you know obviously for me senior year was '87, so you know that's that's when Slippery When Wet was huge. So of course you know that it, it's going to play in that way. Uh, that I prefer that one, but. I think New Jersey was a, was just fabulous. Yeah, and and credit Bon Jovi for reaching the heights that they did in Slippery When Wet and getting about as darn close to replicating it with another album as you could because they, as you said, when you saw them at the Spectrum, they were the biggest band in the world, right? right? And they were able to continue that with yet another album, which is so hard to do. Right, they go from selling out these these. Uh, arenas these hockey and basketball arenas you know these major arenas across the u.s and they go to stadiums mm-hmm. uh, on, on the new jersey tour yep yep no that's a good choice all right so this one is a little bit of a guilty pleasure of mine um you remember you would remember the band uh came out around the same time and that was uh white lion and pride uh this was definitely in my car playing on the on the uh on the cassette i loved uh that was one of my workout tapes. Okay. Was uh, was White Line for no other reason than Vito Brada. Vito Brada is one of the greatest guitar players that nobody knows of. Yeah. Um, that is because uh, Mike Tramp is a lead singer, uh, and he's okay. You know, he's a good he's a good singer. It was it was well produced. It was actually actually was produced by a, a German. Uh, Wagner was the producer for for the album. Um, but Vito Brada to me is like nobody. I could, I could, if they took the, all the music out of of Pride and just had him playing his guitar pieces in those songs, I would listen to that album because when I heard uh, you, you talk about a song that uh, when he's playing the his uh, solo in Wait, which Correct. was the first song that uh, you know got MTV play and was on the radio, it, it turned my head because it was like it was the first time I heard anybody sound as close or near like eddie van halen uh you know with a guitar he, he was a virtuoso so i'll give you a little tidbit with that and you said wagner which would be the correct german way because you know i mean i've heard it you know, it's michael wagner's but he I, I think that's the english but yeah you'd be the correct to say wagner but uh i've heard i've heard him talk about when he was recording and uh vito brado was playing with greg G- D- greg d'angelo who was the who was the drummer all they were doing was they were setting up for D'Angelo to do his drum part, and Vito was playing along. You know, like, and you know they probably would have just cut him out, but it was just so uh, they could have this. They could have this like live feel to it. The track you hear on the album is the solo he did when he's when they're recording D'Angelo's drum part, and they when he was done, uh, Michael Wagner said, he goes. Well, that's it. I think we got it. And Vito's like, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "No, no." He goes, "That's the solo for the album." He goes, "Come on, I'm not, I wasn't even trying." He goes, "No, that's it. That's perfect." For for a lot of people who listen to the radio, uh, you know, when the children cry was arguably their biggest hit. Yeah, but it's the one that I don't listen to anymore. But it's the guitar in in that song that keeps me coming back to the song. I don't think uh, lyrically or uh, you know anything else in the song is brilliant other than the guitar playing of Vito Brada. I think he's, he just 
to me, he's, he's phenomenal. I but, wish I wish he would have put out more stuff. Well, the whole band was great. Yeah. I mean, even James Lomenzo, the, the bass player, is just recently got the, the gig in, in Megadeth. You know, and he is, and that he, the previous uh, gig that he had was with John Fogarty. Right. So he is toured for years he in the early 2000s he was david lee roth's bass player and so just consistently plays with a lot of people it's i know it's the genre that you know we do not like hearing called hair band music and this band would have been a poster child for that because mike tramp was kind of that pretty boy mm -hmm. blonde lead singer that uh wore the uh, the neon spandex pants and uh, you know, definitely posed and ran around the stage and kind of did a David Lee Roth impersonation. Well, I was going to say Bon Jovi impression. Yeah. yeah. And that, and, and that, you know, that, so that's, that's a good point because that's kind of the style. Yeah. So it's, it's now we have, we have instead of like these really intense, you know, hard metal, you know, Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson type of guys. Now we have these really pretty guys running around and that was Mike Tramp. But I, I you know, I did not know you were going to pick this album. I, okay. I, this, this is an album that I still come back to. Yeah, I, I I I was a big fan then. I still am now. Kind of like you're you're uh, with the outfield, right? I, you know, it's one of those one of those groups that never really hit the levels of some of these people that we talk about. But yet, for us, they we keep coming back. But to my favorite song on that album is the first song, "Hungry." Yes, it's well, it, we're talk about a great Vito Brado, uh, Brado solo or just just guitar playing throughout it. That from the opening of the song, it's full on Vito. Okay. My next one is probably going to shock some listeners, I think, uh, because we never haven't really talked much about uh, rap or hip hop, but yet this, uh, you know, this group was, uh, you know, instrumental in my introduction into rap music, and uh, I started. I, we had heard of them through MTV, but there was a movie that we watched on Prism that you and I both watched together. And we probably ended up watching it about 50 or 60 times. Because we taped it. We did tape it. Uh, it was a movie that came out. It was called Crush Groove. And it was made by pretty much the who's who of rap music at at that particular time. But it was there. They they brought in uh, Sheila E. Mm -hmm. She was the uh, the pop star because she had a successful debut album. So she was brought in to act in this movie. Blair Underwood. Look his name up. He's been in a lot of things. Uh, it was kind of the main character, but it was centered around the music. And what drove me uh, to go out, run out and buy this cassette tape was Run DMC's King of Rock. Absolutely. That's how the movie starts, where they're in the recording studio making King of Rock. And um, I had to have it. And King of Rock, to me, is so groundbreaking because so much came out of rap music based on this. And it comes down to one person rick rubin gets so much credit for uh bringing rock and roll to rap music but you, you actually talk to people like russell simmons who was the run and run dmc he doesn't give it to rick rubin he gives it to a guy by the name of larry smith and he said larry smith was the producer on king of rock and it was his idea to start bringing in these rock and roll um uh riffs into their music and that's why they said that, that when they came up with the name of the album king of rock it was kind of like um it's like well wouldn't people have expected you to say the king of rap right instead of the king of rock i mean whoever associates rap music with rock music and that was kind of the wink at 
what uh, Larry was doing, and that's kind of why they decided to come up with the name of that album, King of Rock. Um, it was the precursor to Raising Hell, which brought you know became uh, brought rap music, uh, and all of a sudden they had sort of these groups that were with Run DMC at the time, like the Beastie Boys, who were also in Crush Groove. They are. Um, but then you had Raising Hell, then Licensed to Ill, LL Cool J. I mean, all these, all, all of a sudden rap music became, play, was starting to be played well, on the radio. Well, and LL Cool J is in, in the movie. Crush Group, yeah. Very briefly. Uh, uh, very young LL Cool J. And, and, you know, I just want to correct you on one little thing so we don't get any feedback. It, it was Joseph Simmons was the run and run DMC. Russell's his older brother, who was the manager. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes, it, yes. It, it, so... But yeah, no, you're right. That that was a, a groundbreaking movie. Uh, Run DMC were the stars of the movie, you know. But that wasn't their first album. I mean, uh, Rockbox was the first one. So I mean, I, we were aware of Run DMC right prior to that, right? Um, but the movie Crush Groove just brought this. Uh, I didn't know who the Fat Boys were before Curtis Blow. Or Curtis Blow. And, um, although uh, we did know, I think, I mean, I knew about Curtis Blow because he had that song basketball, we had basketball. And of it, course he talks about Dr. J yes. in the song. And so since we were big Dr. J fans, we, we were all over that. Yes. Um, but so many good songs on that, on that album, the King of rock, uh, you know, you talk too much, uh, obviously King of rock, um, just it's hard times on that one or is that hard one? no hard times was on the first but that's on rock box yeah okay yeah but this was one of those one of those albums that if i want to get pumped up is and, run's house on that one no so what but what was it in the movie where uh they played run's house in the movie okay where they're doing the live show right where, where um he turns to him and says uh you know I'm only going to pay, you know, you're only going to get paid for, for three, uh, three acts. Cause they had Sheila E go up yeah. and, um, but then they go up there and, and they, cause, uh, runs mad at, at, uh, Russell for, you know, having getting mad at him for Sheila E and not paying. So that was when they did runs house and my okay. mother effing house. Yeah. Cause runs house. I mean, I guess they did have that on tougher than leather. Okay. That- yes, they did. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yep. So King of rock run DMC, you know, kicks off the, uh, the whole rap genre for me and uh, really got me into rap music um 1986 hooters makes my list nervous night i was a huge hooters fan and you knew you, you sure. know that yeah. um i had taped a uh a documentary that they made uh, and ended up airing it on mtv i i actually you know, looked at the guide see when it was going to be on the air had the vcr ready to go and I actually taped it was like an hour long kind of it, they they did little spotlights on each members of the band and then they uh they showed a live concert that they played at the tower theater um anybody that says tower theater in philly technically it's not philly and anybody that lives in philly will tell you that it's in upper derby it's not actually in in philly but the tower theater still exists today and the uh you know the hooters uh in in philadelphia area yeah, they're they're legends. Um, I actually used to work with somebody that was at the and we danced video shoot at the Exton Drive-In Movie Theater, which okay. no longer exists. Um, but he did say that they shot it all night, and um, the biker gang that shows up at the end was not scripted. They showed up on their own, and the the guys who filmed the videos thought it was pretty cool, so they kept it in there. Okay, all right. So that's true story. Maybe nobody knew that. That's my one little you know 
uh, nugget of wisdom into uh, into uh, rock history. Um, but the Hooters, I just loved it from from top from top to bottom. I think I think my favorite song, probably the favorite song that was released, was Day by Day. I, that to me, that's my that's the quintessential Hooters song in my opinion. Um, but I think my favorite song on the album. And you, you mentioned uh, the police and, and a little bit of reggae, but they did a reggae song, sort of, was just hanging on a heartbeat. Good. I love that, that song. That was going to be my choice yeah. for my favorite one. I, I that's to me, that's my favorite song on that. That's the one I still find myself like humming to, from time to time. But I was a big Hooters fan. I saw them in concert when they uh, had the next album, which was One Way Home. That's why I started firing off all these <laughs> songs. Um, but yeah, a Nervous Night for me is is an all time favorite. Um, Let's see. We already talked about Van Halen. Here's one for you. How about In Excess Kick? It it's here. I hold up my list. It was on my that uh, was on my maybe talk about list. I uh, I I liked In Excess before. I loved In Excess when they released Kick. Sure. Because it was a different uh, In Excess's sound before was was pretty straightforward rock, you know, kind of a poppy rock type sound. Um Kick sounded so much different than anything else that they had put out because they, they, they slowed down the uh, the back you know the beat, and they took sort of the drums away and they started experimenting with all these different sounds. I mean, "Never Tear Us Apart" is almost a full on orchestra piece, and there, but there's so many different elements to that album. It just showed how how the range that the band had. Um, you know, uh, "New Sensation." Yep. Uh, you know one of my favorite but then you, you turn that around and then you have something as cool um uh you know as uh, uh well devil inside which is which is kind of that raunchy kind of sexy rock type sound and uh need you tonight it's just everything had such a unique sound to it it didn't but yet the whole album kind of flowed into into um you know as you said albums kind of had a start and a finish right and there was there was a a method to the madness and this is where you kind of have to credit um you know the producers i think and the guy who produced that album was a guy by the name of chris thomas who when you go back and look at his uh, resume he worked with the beatles he worked with pink floyd he worked with elton john extensively i think elton john used chris thomas for just about every album he did okay so this is a guy who was who was a who was a pro and i think he knew how to put an album together and kick to me just starts starts well with with uh, need you tonight, and then it just goes rolls right into everything else. So. Now it's 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 an album that I once again like I, everything else on my list as as I showed you I it was on my list that had to get cut because I you know I had like fourteen fifteen songs I had, right. to, I had to stop at some point but this this was this was something that was uh, you know once again we talk about the end of the pop culture was very monumental it, it was one where if you were going to the to most high schools probably that you would have seen a lot of kick cassettes in the cars uh in the parking lot it, you know there's a video out there where in excess plays wembley stadium and i think it's like 1991 and when they go into new sensation and the entire uh ground uh level starts jumping up and down to me that really epitomizes kind of that era and you know 1991 you're still basically in the 80s we're still in the gen x generation where we're you know people are you know off in college from our age Mm -hmm. and it's it's you know it's still kind of the same vibe and it 
you know, Michael Hutchins, he, he could command a crowd. He, he definitely had a lot of charisma and it's, you know, it's a shame that he's not around anymore. Yeah. But there was, there's something, if you go back and it's, it's live baby live is the entire concert that they shot there. And it's, it's really impressive. Okay. And my final, uh, album on this list is, uh, Bobby Brown's don't be cruel, which came out in the fall of 1988. You know, it's again, it's that beginning of that senior year, but it just goes kind of shows that what were my, what were some of my biggest uh, favorite bands at the time? Bon Jovi, guns and roses, white lion, white lion, Bobby Brown. Yeah. So you know you touched on uh, Madonna and Cyndi Lauper with with your list, kind of you know kind of the same thing. There's such diversity in '80s music, and now all of a sudden now you have a new form out there. You have New Jack Swing, and this really to me is the this is number one, the number one uh, beginning of New Jack Swing because all of a sudden now L.A. Reid and Babyface who had produced uh, Janet Jackson's Control, but I wouldn't necessarily throw Control into that New Jack Swing type sound. Um, but these guys, they, they had a they had, uh, you know, strong resume when they're producing this album. But I, what, what I think gives it its different sound compared to the other things that Reed and Babyface had done before was Bobby Brown brings in a guy by the name of Teddy Riley as his uh, co- collaborator. And Teddy Riley gets, the, uh, produce, gets a producing credit on this album and credit Bobby Brown for sticking to his guns because the album, the, the record company didn't want Teddy Riley to be a part of the project, but Bobby Brown was pretty insistent on bringing Teddy in. And Teddy really was uh, a, a songwriting force on this, on this album. And not only that, but they, him and Bobby Brown had collaborated on kind of the, how he wanted the album to sound, you know, okay. the first album Bobby did uh, as a solo artist, did not do well. He said it was too bubblegum because you know, he's coming off a new edition. They wanted him to sound like a kid. He wanted to sound like a grown-up. And he brought in Teddy Riley to to accomplish that. And he did by, as you know, we read earlier, was the top-selling album of the year 1989 in the United States. So uh, I wasn't the only one that, that enjoyed this album. Uh, you know, many people did. No, some big songs in there, you know, Don't Be Cruel, which was the, uh, you know, the, the name of the album was was a, was a single. Uh, My Prerogative is one that you still hear a lot of. My personal favorite, Roni. You like that one? That's, uh, that, that's a great song. I, my favorite is Every, Every Little Step. Okay. Every Little Step. That's I mean, my favorite. They're all good. They're all good. But I, I, I think Roni is, you know, back in the back in the day, you know, we'd have the uh, the Power Jams, the Power 99, <laughs> Power 99, the a local Philadelphia radio station would uh you know have have their their jams the power jams and roni was just right up there the uh every little step for me when the song came out and i think everybody here would probably agree that part of what makes a song an all-time favorite for you is the timing in which the song comes out and when every little step came out it was right at the end of my senior year we're like close to graduation we were having fun uh it was just it's such an upbeat song and then uh um you know, to throw that, everything that was going on. It was a good time. It was a good time in my life. And it's just a great, fun, happy song that you could play it uh, at any wedding, anytime today. I don't think anybody's going to be complaining about it. And it made it, you so. want to go out and get the uh, the Gumby haircut with a with a line drawn through it like Bobby had in the video? Well, I don't, wouldn't necessarily say that about myself, but yeah. I, I'm, you did see it a lot. You, you saw a lot of it. Yeah. I did work with somebody at uh, the Park City uh, Mall in the sneaker store. 
and he uh, he definitely was patterning his hair hairstyle after Bobby Brown. Yep, and you know Bob, he he was a trendsetter. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that was my list. Um, you want to review yours? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a breakdown of the list. So I have um, High Infidelity by Ario Speedwagon, Sports by Huey Lewis and the News, Pyromania uh, by Def Leppard, Cindy Lauper's She's So Unusual. Uh, I have Van Halen's 1984, John Cougar Mellencamp with Scarecrow, The uh, Great Outfield album Play Deep, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet, ZZ Top Eliminator, Beastie Boys License to Ill, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, U2's Joshua Tree, and I had Madonna's Like a Virgin. And on my list, I had Bon Jovi, New Jersey, um, King of Rock by Warren DMC, John Cougar Mellencamp, The Lonesome Jubilee, White Lion, Pride, Huey Lewis in the News, Sports, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, The Hooters, Nervous Night, Van Halen, 1984, Bobby Brown, Don't Be Cruel, and In Excess with Kick. I don't think you could go wrong with any of the albums that we uh, that we talked about tonight. No, and you know every one of those albums mentioned is worth buying again if you've lost it. If you were like me and most of your collection was in cassette tapes and they're probably lost or fried or it's time, you know, to go back and, and replenish the uh, the the collection and every one of these should be in that collection. Yeah, and maybe this happened to anybody that's that's listening to this podcast, but um, what happened to me was I did a very good job of preserving my cassette tapes. Okay. I had bought a I spent quite a decent amount of money on a on a case that I could store them in. Unfortunately, the case had you take them out of the plastic. Okay. So I stored them in just as the cassette and it had like a little styrofoam thing that you could lay over the top of it. Well, somewhere over the years, the styrofoam stuck yeah. to the tops of the tape, and they right. all got they all got destroyed. Yeah, and that that's basically what happened to my collection. Not the exact same thing with the case, but my my collection got broken, melted, destroyed, lost, thrown out. It's so yeah, but yeah, it's time to rebuild it. And uh, the, these are those, these are both good lists. Well, we certainly hope that you enjoyed uh, tuning in. again. As we said, this is completely subjective. I mean, you could be listening and saying, well, "What about?" What about this group? What about that group? You know, you know, maybe you were a fan of Genesis. Maybe you were a fan of Heart. Uh, there was so much going. There was so much music out there in the 1980s. Nobody will d- dispute that at all. One of the most prolific time periods of consistent popular music being uh, churned through the charts, I think, in music history. Uh, so you're going to have different different types. Yeah, because somebody's out there, there saying, "What are you morons? What about Prince's Purple Rain?" And yeah, you know, there, there's. Right. I mean, it, it, basically what it came down to, at least for me, I had to cut the list off at some point. Uh, you know, Purple Rain would have been, if I'd expanded it to 20, Purple Rain would have been on my list. It's written on my list as yeah. well. So I just I just had to cut it. It's just, uh, you know, hopefully this kind of jogs a little bit of, of interest for those of you that are listening and that you can, you know, hear what we've talked about. Uh, maybe it'll cause you to go back to maybe what you were, what was your favorite back in the day. From, uh, from when you were growing up in the 1980s. So hopefully you enjoyed this little little conversation. Okay, so next week, we're going to, uh, it's going to be my topic. It's my choice. And I have, we, we spent some time in the 80s uh, in this episode. We're going to go back into the 70s. So what you want to do, get your pajamas, get a bowl of sugary cereal, because we're talking cartoons. Awesome. Okay. 
We're talking uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Saturday morning cartoons. Yes, that is right up right up my alley as well. So, all right. Well, we hope you enjoyed us uh, talking about music here in the 80s. Um, we had a good time talking about it. And next week, we're going to talk about uh, cartoons. Yep. So, keep it tuned right here for, for Gen X Playback. And again, we thank everybody for listening. Uh, we do notice that uh, we're growing slowly but surely. Uh, if you do have a friend, tell a friend if you if you enjoy this conversation that we have, uh, you know, each week. And, uh, you know, we certainly enjoy talking about these, these you know, particular topics. There's so much to cover. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we try and keep it a little bit diverse, you know, from week to week. So we, we definitely thank you for, for tuning in. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's definitely something where we are enjoying kind of the experience and, and seeing where this path takes us. And, the you know, we, we do get some feedback from some people and, and some su- suggestions as far as topics. It's something that... Uh, you know, is, you know, we're, we're very interested in. And also, as Scott said, you know, if, if there's people that you know that, that if enjoy this, you know, share, let them know, and uh, let's grow this uh, little uh, community that we have. For Gen X Playback, I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we will talk to you next time as we talk about Saturday morning cartoons right here on Gen X Playback. Take care. See ya.